0: The United Fruit Company was one of the most controversial multinational corporations of the 20th century. The company employed thousands of workers operating massive banana plantations across Latin America and the Caribbean. United Fruit became one of the biggest banana exporting companies in history. But behind those exports, the company was a problem. United Fruit was involved in a brutal pattern of deadly worker strikes. It was accused of corruption and bribing government officials. The company was caught up in coups. The CIA and U.S. administrations even supported invading Central American countries on its behalf. But in Costa Rica, United Fruit was somehow different. There, bananas may have been a silver lining. On this week's show, we're going to explore why things were so different in Costa Rica and to look for lessons from United Fruit for today. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm your host, Chad Bown, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. To learn more about the United Fruit Company in Costa Rica, we're going to speak with Diana Van Patten. Diana is a professor at Yale University. She's a trade economist, and she has some new research about the economics of working with United Fruit. Hi, Diana.
1: Hi. (laughs)
0: Today, I wanna start Trade Talks a little bit differently. And not to put you on the spot, but if you don't mind, I wanted to ask a little bit about your background. Nowadays, you are one of Trade Talks favorite trade economists, but people aren't just born being trade economists. So tell us a little bit about yourself, beginning maybe with where you grew up.
1: I am Costa Rican. I grew up in San Jose, that is uh, the capital of Costa Rica. I lived there until I was 23 years old, and I actually went to college at the University of Costa Rica and then moved to the U.S. to pursue my PhD.
0: The United Fruit Company is the topic of your research that we're going to discuss today. United Fruit was a multinational corporation headquartered in the United States and became hugely divisive, especially for the problems it created in Central America. What did you learn about the company growing up as a kid in Costa Rica?
1: As part of the books that you have to read while you're in primary school, I read, I think, one book about the United Fruit Company. It was very kind of kid-friendly. It was not painting like a very dark picture or anything like that, but I did know that the company existed. Later on, when I was in college, I also read a famous book called 100 Years of Solitude that it was inspired by the experience of the company and its influence in Colombia. And this book did paint uh, like a much darker picture about what the company was and the effect that it had on workers. Basically, it painted it as an almost neocolonialist company uh, that was exploiting workers there.
0: One Hundred Years of Solitude was a 1967 novel written by the Colombian author, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It became a literary classic and sold over 45 million copies worldwide. The book is fiction, but it draws on real events including a 1928 labor dispute in Colombia involving United Fruit, where the Colombian army intervened and ended up massacring people who had been on strike because of really bad working conditions. So as you said, a very dark picture painted about the company. What ultimately got you interested in doing your own research into United Fruit?
1: When I was taking my second year history class at UCLA, uh, my professor was Walker Hanlon, and we had to propose a research project. If you had all the data and resources in the world, what would you write? And we had read a paper about the experience of like, mines in Peru and their long-run negative effect on development. This is a paper by Melissa Dell. And, and so I thought, I'm gonna do the exact same thing, but instead of mines in Peru, I'm gonna study the United Fruit Company. Well, and in Costa Rica, because that's where I'm from. Uh, and I'm gonna document like, how negative it was for long-run outcomes.
0: Melissa Dell is the incredible economist at Harvard. She won the John Bates Clark Medal in in 2020, including for her pathbreaking work that you mentioned. Melissa Dell documented meticulously how a a system of forced labor that the Spanish government had imposed on Peru's mining sector between the the 1570s and early 1800s had negative effects on Peru's economic development that, that lasted for a really long time even after the the forced labor system was dismantled. I can totally see how how this would be inspiring and make you challenge yourself uh, with applying her new techniques to study questions you had about the history of of United Fruit in Costa Rica. I wanna turn now to your research about the United Fruit Company and Costa Rica. Take us back to the country in the late 1800s when this story starts And maybe begin by explaining what the Costa Rican government was trying to do.
1: So in the case of Costa Rica, in the late 1800s, the government wanted to construct a railroad that would connect the center of the country, that's where the capital is, with the Caribbean Sea. And so what they did was they asked for a big loan to construct that themselves. But building railroads is actually quite hard, and there are many things involved in the process. And what happened was they ended up using up the money with, and they didn't finish the construction. And so they still wanted to finish the railroad, but had no money left. And so what can we do? And they found this investor, this American investor called Minor Keith. And Minor Keith offered a deal where he would finish the railroad. And instead of paying him with money, he could be paid with a land concession. And so the government agreed to that deal because what they had was land and not money.
0: Minor Keith is this American entrepreneur. The Costa Rican government has a half-built railroad that they want finished, but they've run out of money. And so Minor Keith says, you can pay me with land, a land concession, and I'll finish building the railroad for you. What happened next?
1: Uh, Minor Keith built the railroad. While he was building it, he brought some people from the Caribbean to help in the construction. And these people in turn brought bananas with them. And they started planting these bananas alongside the railroad. And Minor Keith realized that, oh, this fruit grows really well here and it's like very tasty. And the United Fruit Company was founded from this like entrepreneur that saw a potential business in the bananas and and who already had all this land that he could use to start the company.
0: When exactly did Costa Rica give Minor Keith this land concession and for how long was the the lease expected to last?
1: Minor Keith was assigned a concession in eighteen eighty four, and it was a nineteen a ninety nine years lease. The company was founded in eighteen ninety nine, and then it lasted until uh, nineteen eighty four. So we should think about the company as like a firm that is thinking long term.
0: So in eighteen ninety nine, Minor Keith uses that original land concession from Costa Rica to begin to grow bananas for the United Fruit Company to export to the world. For Minor Keith and United Fruit, where did things go from there?
1: So Costa Rica was like the first experience that Minor Keith had in Latin America doing this sort of business. But afterwards, the United Fruit Company started operating in many different countries in Latin America under, let's call it a similar business model, like they would get a land concession, maybe because of building a railroad. This also happened in other countries in Central America, and then use that land to plant. Well, in the case of Costa Rica, it was mostly bananas. In the case of other countries, bananas and something else.
0: For Costa Rica, how important economically were bananas and united fruit? Costa Rica was not a heavily populated country at the the time. I looked it up, and the national population was something like 340,000 people in, in 1900, And even by 1950, it was still less than a million. Was United Fruit a a big part of the Costa Rican economy?
1: The United Fruit was huge for the Costa Rican economy. It occupied 9% of the national territory. It, at some point, was exporting 58% of exports. It employed 14% of the agricultural labor force and 7% of total employment.
0: Wow. Okay. A huge part of the Costa Rican economy. Geographically, then, where in Costa Rica was the land concession for bananas? I I have in my mind that Costa Rica is this skinny country in the warmth of Central America with the Pacific Ocean on the west side. I think you said that the land concession was near the Caribbean Sea, which runs all the way down the the east side. How close was the land concession to, say, the, the capital city or the population centers at the time?
1: given that there was no like fast way of transportation pretty far away from other civilization centers, in particular the capital city that was where more of the, most of the population was. And so what the company needed when it started was workers that would work year-round because banana is not seasonal. You can grow it year-round. So it needed workers year-round, and it needed them to basically just live there and work there even though the area was pretty much unpopulated when the concession started and the company had not invested much there.
0: Bananas are a year-round crop, but United Fruit's land concession is out in the middle of nowhere, a long way from the cities. The company needs to convince workers to move there and then stay and work year-round. But why was that a problem? Did the, the workers that United Fruit needed to grow the bananas have other, maybe better, Outside options?
1: For an agricultural worker, the main kind of outside option that they would have would be to work in coffee if they were not working in bananas. Coffee was one of the main export crops of the country at the time. And so during coffee harvesting season, people would leave the plantation, go to coffee areas, and then work there. Coffee is very different than banana. Banana is usually planted in areas that are low, they're very humid. Coffee grows better in highlands that are not that humid. That's exactly where the capital city is. So the outside option was, let's go closer to our families, to an area that has a lot more amenities and work there during the coffee harvesting season. And then when it's over, we can go back to, to work for the company.
0: For its banana business, United Fruit finds it has to compete with the coffee plantations for workers. And One problem is its geographical disadvantage. The banana plantations are, are far away from the city and in humid areas. Coffee is grown where it's drier and also closer to the cities where the workers, friends, and families were living. But why was this competition for workers such a problem for United Fruit?
1: That led to very high uh, worker turnover. So the average worker turnover at the time was uh, around three months. And so company reports constantly complain that it's a challenge to maintain workers in the area. So they say, We train them in our methods, and as soon as they become efficient in producing, they leave, and then they have to be retrained. There was kind of an additional complication here that was malaria. Yeah, in areas that are low and that are humid, malaria was quite a bit of a concern. And it had been shown, and the experience of the Panama Canal kind of taught the company a lot of things here. The Panama Canal was finished in 1914, to give you some context. It had been shown that if people are moving around too much, like in and out of an area, Malaria can spread faster. And so the fact that people are fluctuating so much from different regions of the country was also making the malaria problem even harder within within the company.
0: United Fruit has a hard time keeping workers for its year-round banana plantations. When workers left to go pick coffee during peak coffee harvest season, there were not enough left to pick bananas. New workers the company hired would be less productive, and this high worker turnover required constant retraining. Combine that with the health problem of malaria, a killer disease that spread more easily when workers were constantly moving in and out of the region. For United Fruit and its banana plantations in Costa Rica, things just weren't working. The company needed to do something different. Worker turnover was a really big problem for United Fruit in Costa Rica in the early 1900s. What did the company start to do to fix its problems?
1: What the company started doing was investing in local amenities. This company was a company that was planning on being there for many years. So they're thinking about a long-run perspective. So one type of amenities in which they invested is kind of very intuitive, is health. As uh, malaria was a problem in the area and to deal with malaria, it was important to have like a relatively good health system in place. So this was a pretty like core part of their of their business. There are other amenities that are not as intuitive, like later on, they started providing larger houses for workers where they could also potentially feed their families. They also built parks uh, near the areas where workers lived and things like that.
0: United Fruit starts to build hospitals, housing, parks, all to help it keep its workers from leaving. Were there other worker amenities the company began to provide that surprised you?
1: The more surprising part was that the company also started building schools and the schools were intended for the kids of workers to attend. Now these schools were mostly primary schools At the time, even finishing primary school was something that was not normal, especially for the kids of an agricultural worker. But it's something that potentially they felt was attractive for workers. Remember that the company is trying to convince workers to move from the capital city into this very remote area with their families, because this is something that they believe will decrease the worker turnover. If the worker is living there with their families, and he or she decides to leave and work for coffee, then what is the family going to do? So this is a way to keep them in place even during the coffee harvesting
0: season. United Fruit is building hospitals and schools. Today, these are often government-funded public goods, of course. I suppose the big question this raises, though, is why? Why didn't United Fruit just pay its workers higher wages instead of going through the trouble of investing in all these amenities?
1: So first of all, let's remember that during coffee harvesting season, coffee wages were higher. So the company would have to compete with these higher wages every year. Now, as I said, coffee was grown near like, near the capital city. So you're also competing against like, the workers being closer to their families for a few months a year. That is, that is harder to, to compete with. Now, instead of paying these very high wages, the company decided to invest in these local amenities. Uh, To do that, of course, it has to be thinking about long run, like I invest once and then this is gonna last for many years, say a hospital uh, or like a school.
0: The relationship between the worker and a company like United Fruit, does the bargaining power between the two change if, if the worker is paid in amenities as opposed to cash wages?
1: The company's kind of power over the worker is higher the more they pay them in amenities versus wages. So think about it in this way. If to move out, to quit my job, I need to have some cash in my pocket because potentially I need to move, I need to pay some expenses, but I'm not being paid in cash, I'm being paid in amenities, then it's going to be harder for me to leave. In the extreme case, and this is something that happened in other countries in Central America with this company, in the extreme case, the company could say, I'm going to pay you with vouchers, with company money. This is something that is only useful here, and if you leave, you have nothing in your pocket. Then the company has a lot of power over that worker. In Costa Rica, the company actually attempted to pay with vouchers, but this is something that the government didn't allow, so they couldn't actually do it, but they actually did it in other countries
0: company vouchers, like United Fruit dollars or, or something, it, its own currency, I guess, that, that could only be spent at company stores. So the company is paying workers in amenities because that gives the company more power over its workers. It's in United Fruit's own best interest to not pay them too much in, in cash.
1: The company is not building these amenities, providing these services, because of the goodness of it of their heart, they're doing it because it's profitable. And the reasons why it's profitable is they would have to pay much more if it was just wages, and they would have less power over the over the workers if they were just giving them higher wages.
0: Diana, what you just described is really a preview of where your research ends up. But I want to take you back in time again to your second year of graduate school when you were really just getting started. If I heard you correctly, you were originally pretty skeptical a- about United Fruit. You'd read 100 Years of Solitude in college. You'd just studied this amazing paper from Melissa Dell, where she developed new economic techniques. And she had used those techniques to show that when the Spanish had imposed a forced labor system on Peru's mines, things had ended up really badly for Peru. You were thinking maybe you could adapt Melissa Dell's research techniques, look at banana workers, and maybe you'll be able to document just how bad the United Fruit Company was for Costa Rica. So how did you start your second year project?
1: I had my second year project, so I decided I'm gonna t- test how bad the United Fruit Company was. And so I went to Costa Rica, and the first thing I tried to get were the maps from where the company was. So I went to the archive and you know, f- search for the maps. And we found that these maps had been really like deteriorated by humidity. And so they were not that great. We couldn't read them that well. And so it was like, okay, the project is over and hasn't even started. But then we digged a little bit deeper. Costa Rica is not such a big country. So we found someone who had been in contact with the, with the cartographer that made the maps and in his garage, there was a copy of those maps. And so kind of our first contribution was to digitize those maps and then donate them to the, to the archive.
0: For you, the, the maps are super important because you need to find the exact boundaries of the United Fruit Company in Costa Rica. Your approach is going to be to carefully compare the living standards of households inside the United Fruit boundary with the living standards of similar people outside the boundary, households that were not working for United Fruit. And so the details of these geo-reference locations on the maps are going to be absolutely critical. So initially, when you looked, what did you find?
1: We kind of compared them and found that United for Company areas were better off. And so our first inst- instinct was this is obviously wrong. It's probably because our data is too aggregated. And so we went to, to, to search for better data. And we actually got this census data what, that was georeferenced by census blocks. So these are like almost like house blocks, they're really, really precise measures. We ran them again, and again we found UFC, United Fruit Company houses are better, like households are better off.
0: Better off. Sorry to interrupt, but this is great. So your thinking at this stage is that your results must still be wrong. You're expecting to find United Fruit workers doing worse off. And that was because of these well known stories that United Fruit workers had been exploited. And, and so when you don't find that, you're convinced you're the problem and your results are wrong. Okay, sorry, keep going. What happens next?
1: Probably there's something that we're not taking into account. The comparison is like missing something. So we go to the University of Costa Rica and do an interview with this historian. And his dissertation was on land tenure in this area in this time period. I mean, did he, he knew a lot. And so we said, okay, let's look at this area. Here we think the company could not choose the land. And we have the like the super detailed census block data, like now we're going to find the right effect. And again, we find that the company, like company households are better off. And so at that point we were convinced that this was true and it was just a matter of let's find out why.
0: Your intellectual journey here is amazing. You were convinced your results had to be wrong, but you kept digging and digging and eventually the data screamed at you loudly enough, your data, to tell you that your results were actually correct. Households living and working for United Fruit were actually doing better than households elsewhere in Costa Rica. The United Fruit Company's impact on Costa Rica's living standards was actually something positive. But at the same time, this was so puzzling. So now the question you need to figure out is why. Why had United Fruit actually had a positive impact? So what was your starting point?
1: Our starting point was qualitative evidence from historical reports. So we went back, there was roughly a report every year from the company intended to inform shareholders of the situation and challenges in the plantations. And consistently, early reports were were saying we have this problem with worker turnover, we can't make them stay too long. And later on, reports start talking about investing in amenities as a solution to the turnover problem. So they say, we, have, we can invest in, in our workers beyond their health care. We can construct parks, schools, so that they will move in with their families. Reports actually say this explicitly.
0: From the company's annual reports, you now have the smoking gun, or at least you know where to look for the smoking gun. How are you able to independently examine the, the impact of United Fruit on the living standards of Costa Rican households?
1: Using very detailed census data, we're able to compare households that were directly exposed to the United Fruit Company with almost equivalent households in other areas of the country, but that were, that were not exposed to the United Fruit Company. And we document that United Fruit Company households are better in different dimensions, in, including consumption, better access to housing, sanitation, and education. And this is important because these are measures of living standards that are not wages. If we were only looking at wages, we wouldn't be taking into account the amenities that are such a key part of the story.
0: Amenities are hugely important. And your theory is that the company needed to offer amenities instead of higher wages to keep its workers from leaving. Because United Fruit really had to fight for workers against the coffee plantations. But to investigate whether using amenities to compete for workers was really the story for United Fruit in, in Costa Rica, what did you do?
1: The exercise was, let's find areas within the United Fruit Company that potentially were facing more competition for, in, in the labor market. So where workers could have access to a better outside option. And so what we did was identify areas around the company where while the United Fruit Company was operating, workers could get higher wages, agricultural workers could get higher wages. And we found that areas within the United Fruit that were closer to these, let's call them high wage competing uh, nearby areas, received disproportionately more investment in amenities than other areas within the United Fruit that were farther away from these, say, high outside option
0: uh, places. And the outside option places for these banana workers was working in this other agricultural sector, coffee. So what information did you need?
1: What we do is look at suitability to grow coffee. And, And so we ask, are areas within the United Fruit that are closer to regions that are suitable to grow coffee or more suitable, there are different degrees of suitability, are they receiving more investments in amenities? And we find that that is indeed the case.
0: That exercise compared differences in geographic locations. Costa Rican households got more amenities when they worked for the United Fruit Company and lived in a territory closer to a coffee-growing region because the workers' threat to leave and earn higher wages under this outside option was more credible. What else about the company did you examine?
1: We also examined time variation, like... Does the company behave differently in different moments in time, depending on what is happening with coffee? And so what we look at is world coffee prices. Both banana and coffee are exported. Most of it was exported at the time. And so we see that when, with respect to banana prices, coffee prices are very high. The company is first more likely to invest in amenities. It's much more likely to open a school, for example. But also if we look at worker compensation, this is something that we have several reports for, for uh, many years in which the company reports how much it is spending in wages, how much it is spending in amenities. So we can see worker compensation and we can understand what share of that compensation is amenities versus wages. We see that in time periods when coffee prices are very high with respect to banana prices, uh, amenities as a share of total compensation go up. And so this is also uh, this also aligns with the mechanism that It is really competition that is making the company invest in amenities and not just pay with higher wages.
0: In Costa Rica, workers did better when they had a stronger outside option of leaving to go somewhere else. Like when the coffee sector, United Fruit's competitor for their services, was booming. That outside option incentivized United Fruit to spend more on these amenities for its workers. The company would build hospitals, housing, parks, and even schools. And to see that the workers were doing better in Costa Rica, it was important to look beyond their wages. We needed to examine more complete measures of their living standards, like access to sanitation, housing, and education. By the mid-1900s, United Fruit was a huge part of the Costa Rican economy. You told us the plantations made up 9% of the country's land, The company employed 14% of farm workers, and at one point, its bananas were more than 50% of Costa Rican exports. United Fruit's investment in all these amenities, hospitals, housing, parks, and schools, certainly benefited Costa Ricans at the time. But the company stopped operating, and its lease ran out in 1984. So how about today? Did all these investments in amenities in the mid-1900s translate into long-run benefits for Costa Rica?
1: Many of these effects still exist today. For example, we can look at census data while the company is there and document gaps between United Fruit and non-United Fruit Company households, but then we can't follow areas across time. Even if we look at the 2011 census, that is the most recent census that uh, has come out, we still see significant differences in living standards for households in United Fruit Company areas. So even if the company leaves the area, education is embedded in people. I think that is very important for the persistence.
0: The impact of United Fruit on Costa Rica was persistent. Even today, Costa Ricans that live within the boundaries of where United Fruit was operating continue to have higher living standards than Costa Ricans living elsewhere. Somewhat surprisingly, United Fruit seems to have had a positive impact on Costa Rica's economic development. Diana, a key part of your research to understand why is the story about labor mobility, workers in bananas having an outside option, maybe the ability to threaten to go and work for the coffee harvest instead. Your paper also has a formal economic model that allows you to think about counterfactuals, or what-if types of questions. What could you tell us about the the prospects for Costa Rica's economic development? What if that Costa Rican labor mobility had been a lot lower?
1: We find that if labor mobility was sufficiently low, if it was half, half the level that we observe, the company would have actually hurt the local economy because it has this power over workers and potentially the ability to exploit them.
0: As you described earlier, United Fruit also had plantations elsewhere in Central America during the same period and may have been operating there differently. What do we know about United Fruit's impact on other countries? Do you have any data to, to look at differences for workers there?
1: We don't have the the quality of data that we have in Costa Rica, but we do find for example in Colombia that areas that were exposed to the United Fruit Company are doing worse today than comparable areas outside what was the United Fruit Company. In Colombia, we don't have data on labor mobility, but there's some historical evidence that there, there was repression of workers. Some of them were not even allowed to leave the area. In Guatemala, if you look at uh, United Fruit Company areas, even today, they look much more disconnected in terms of the road network than other areas in the country. So if the area is disconnected, then worker mobility could be lower as well.
0: United Fruits workers in other parts of Central America seem to have had much less labor mobility than in Costa Rica. It may have been the formal repression of workers, like the story in Colombia from 100 years of solitude. It could also just be being cut off because of poor road networks, like in Guatemala. But this also helps explain why Costa Rican workers had it so much better. Aside from labor mobility, during this period, are there other ways that Costa Rica was just fundamentally different from some of these other countries that United Fruit was operating in?
1: Historians have studied uh, this question of whether Costa Rica was different than other countries where the United Fruit Company was. Costa Rica was a pretty stable democracy. At the time, it had two parties, political parties, that were alternating power uh, roughly every four years. And so you could think of it as a repeated game. They were in power today, but maybe in four years they're going to be in power again. And so overall, they had like, they wanted pop- the population to be happy and to re-elect them in the future. In other countries, in Central America, this was not the case. Coups were, ha- happened relatively often, and so it was more of a one-shot game. Well, while you were there, you wanted to maximize maybe not what was good for the people, but maybe what was better, best for your position in the government or for your party. And so this led to other countries, maybe making agreements with the United Fruit that were not in the best interest of the population. So thinking about our, like the story in Costa Rica. So I told you, yeah, the company could choose whether to pay higher wages or higher higher amenities. You could think of a third option of, capturing the government and then not doing any of those things, but actually securing people in some alternative way through the government. In Costa Rica, again, stable democracy, this, put, I mean, observationally was not the optimal thing to do because the company didn't do it. But maybe in other countries that was the most uh, like profitable option.
0: The results of your research on the effects of United Fruit in Costa Rica are amazing and yet also somewhat surprising. They're much different from what other scholars have found when looking at different industries and other countries in different time periods. You talked a little bit about Melissa Dell's work on mining and forced labor in Peru. How should we think about lessons from, from your results on concessions and labor market arrangements in light of all of this other research?
1: Previous papers studying, for example, concessions in Africa or mining in Peru with forced labor have found very negative and long-lasting effects from these arrangements. So in some sense, why our results were surprising to begin with comes from a study of this literature. However, in these other studies, something that works very nicely to identify effects is that people cannot move so you don't have to worry about what type of people are getting into the area something that do we do worry worry a lot about in our study however it also means that well if people cannot move then their outside option is basically zero or maybe like they can move but it's very dangerous and so it's 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 not a very high outside option and so in our case we have people moving around this is going to complicate the estimation of the effects because you have to take into account are the people moving in better than the ones moving out or not and so on. But at the same time is what drives our mechanism. If people were not able to move around then the company would be facing kind of like a fixed supply of labor, they wouldn't have the incentives to invest and we could potentially see the underinvestments that we see in other settings.
0: In other settings, this idea that that a private company In your case, it was United Fruit in Costa Rica, a private company providing amenities that are essentially nowadays public goods that governments typically provide. Is this rare? I think I remember reading about something like this maybe in the upper peninsula of Michigan here in the United States. Are there other examples from history where this kind of thing has happened?
1: Historically, it it has not been extremely rare that private companies provide amenities to their workers. An example is Unilever in Britain or Ford in the Upper Peninsula. Actually, many companies that uh, got established in the Upper Peninsula started investing in amenities. And when you uh, read reports of why, it's surprising how well they align with the ones of the United Fruit. We need to attract and maintain a stable workforce, and therefore we're going to provide these amenities for workers. To attract them and make them stay. And so the, the incentives seem to be much more general than just uh, the United Free Company.
0: My last question for you brings us back to today. Land concessions have been in the news again lately. Countries like China and Saudi Arabia are involved in acquiring land in, in various parts of Africa, often for food. Suppose an African government is, say is thinking about offering a land concession to a foreign company as part of its economic development policy. What lessons from your research would you want the government to be aware of?
1: In recent years, it has been sort of a revival of land concessions. There are many land concessions that have been assigned since the early 2000s because of biofuels, concerned with concerns with food security. And I think the paper can teach us something about the factors that can be key in determining whether these land concessions are gonna have positive or negative effects for the population in the country receiving that concession. So for example, a key that we document is the role of outside options. Labor mobility is part of that outside option, but also is not only moving to, to opportunity, but actually having the opportunity there. So for example, if a country is thinking about a land concession, but doesn't have a competing sector in place, Maybe thinking about two or three plant concessions to different companies might be a better way to go.
0: Diana, this has been incredible. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. (laughs) And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Diana Van Patten at Yale University. Do read her paper with Esteban Mendez titled, Multinationals, Monopsony, and Local Development, Evidence from the United Fruit Company. As always, a huge thanks as well to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow Trade Talks on Twitter. Help us let people know about the podcast by tweeting out this episode. We are on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to options available to workers to prevent them from being exploited under a land concession, two is better than one.